Welcome to another episode of the podcast. This is your proprietor, Tony Ortega, coming to you from an undisclosed location deep inside the interior of the Earth's crust, otherwise known as the Underground Bunker. This week, we're talking to someone we've treasured as a great source of information about Scientology and someone we've been talking to regularly for many years. Karen De La Carrier's career in Scientology was extraordinary, and so has her experience been outside of Scientology as she's become one of the organization's most effective whistleblowers. We're so pleased that she's agreed to talk with us for the podcast. Well, we're especially happy here at the Underground Bunker today to have with us none other than Karen De La Carrier. Karen, I just saw you not too long ago, didn't I? <laughs> yes, Tony. It was real fun. It was real good. And welcome back anytime. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, let me just, to, just to be for full disclosure, let me make it plain that when I was in Los Angeles covering the Danny Maston trial, Karen and her husband, Jeffrey Augustine, were kind enough to let me stay at their house. And it was very convenient because um, Karen and Jeff live just very close to a subway stop. And so I was able to take the subway to the court every day. And so I didn't have to pay for a rental car. So all in all, it really helped because that thing ended up being two months long. Can you believe that, Karen? Yeah, yeah, long trial. And and then we had fun during it. We went out, we did some things, and uh, but then it all ended up with just a mistrial. And so crazy. My beloved dog, Sebastian, really, really took a shine to Tony. <laughs> and he would hop onto his bed like an invited guest. I hope you sent a couple of pictures. You know, uh, you guys have these a beautiful borzoi and uh, very large, stately dogs. And uh, over those two months, Sebastian and I, uh, we developed a little relationship. It was very nice. He's a very sweet dog. I miss him. He's so, Karen, uh, you know, you, 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 and I. Wow, we go way back. And I don't, I don't know that we want to review all that history, but just, just to let people know. Uh, uh, just very briefly, um, you were married to the president of the Church of Scientology, Heber Gentsch, at one time. You had a son with him. Uh, you were a Class 12 auditor trained personally by L. Ron Hubbard on the ship. Um, what other what other things in your background should we quickly review just to remind people who you are? Well, I managed the class 12. So it's a class 12 case supervisor, not just an auditor. That's one echelon above. No, class 12 means nothing now now when I look back on it. It just shows the level of indoctrination of how this life becomes a crusade. It isn't just a job, it's a calling. But when you mentioned Heba, I'd like to launch into a little unknown story of, of, to do with Heber as the president and me. A couple of weeks after I left, they didn't let me leave easily for six months. They sec-checked me and I had to report in daily and they literally pleaded with me to go back on post and stay. Finally, now, was, this, was this around 2010 or was this earlier? 1990. Oh, oh, 1990 when you left the Sea Org. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm leaving the Sea Org, 1990. Okay. 
And two weeks after I left, I got an OSA summons. And you know, your <laughs> you still have fear and anxiety. I was trembling, and, but like a good, obedient little Scientologist, I reported in. And I was put in a room, and there was a meter, and there were cameras pointed at me. And slowly walked in the room, a Scientology lawyer, two security guards, and an OSA executive. And they were all looking at me. And I believe it was Kirsten, but it could have been whoever was the OSA person said, you know, Karen, we're going to have you attest or give an affirmation that you're not going to go off to Heba for child support now that you've left the seal. You're not wow. looking for money, are you? And I took a deep breath. I said, my God, I didn't marry Heba for money and I didn't divorce him for money. And they said, well, we've got some paperwork for you to sign here. You know that Heba earns like $25 a week. You don't want the world to know that you're going to get $12.50. And then it struck me. This was PR. They didn't want the world to know the president of the church made $25 a week. <laughs> I happily signed the documents on camera. But it is intimidating to have security. Right out of view of the camera was the lawyer. Right out of view of the camera was uh, Osa. And like, look, I was happy. I had no intention of filing child support. Much later on, I realized that in California, if you have the child, you can go to the courts for child support. Sure. Any yeah. No, I understand. So that was, I think, just a bit of embarrassment to cover up embarrassment. So again, you, you were a high-ranking Scientologist in the Sea Org. You had trained personally with L. Ron Hubbard. You had married Heber Gench, who um, uh, was a very popular figure in Scientology for a long time. But then uh, you were leaving the Sea Org and getting divorced at the same time. Was that it? No, I had I had already I had already divorced Heba, uh -huh. but they they just had some fear or anxiety. I see that, that I once that to... once you left the Sea Org, then you'd start making demands on him. That kind of thing. Yes, yes. Well, and, but wasn't wasn't there also? Didn't they have something to do with the divorce as well? Wasn't he instructed to divorce you or something? Yes, yes he was He was ordered by Miscavige to divorce me. Miscavige had had some something. Miscavige picks out his enemies and targets, and I was definitely considered too big for my boots. I was considered. Uh, and you know, year after year, I won awards, Auditor of the Year, CS of the Year. I, I was awarded things like L. Ron Hubbard signed E-meter. Those were, <laughs> I, I was a prominent class 12. It wasn't just one, a little dot in the age, in the, in the thing. Anyway, yeah, 
just to give the listeners an update, Heber is doing very, very poorly. He can't even sit up on his own. He has to have braces to actually sit up. And the latest news that I have through various leaks is that they've removed him from the base. They do not want, they definitely emphatically do not like people dying at Ink Base, the Gold Base. Can you just tell them what Gold Base is? Do you sure. Know? And and just to also, so Heber um, was it, through the '90s. He was a pretty popular figure in Scientology, and and he was used as a spokesman. I've talked to reporters, Karen, who really enjoyed interacting with him. I mean, just. Yeah. Not too many years ago, I remember talking to a reporter saying, "Hey, how's Heber? I always like talking to him." I mean, there was, you know, he he persisted in their memories as somebody, a figure that they all enjoyed, yeah. and you know, he sparred with them too. But he was the kind of person that that uh, they seemed reasonable to reporters. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And um, but then he kind of, uh, at some point, fell out of favor with Miscavige, like everyone does. And in 2004, Miscavige created what's called the hole at this base that Karen's talking about, Int Base or Gold Base in San Jacinto, California, near Hemet. And it was literally a prison for people that had been very close to Miscavige. He, he just took an office and locked the door and forced these people to live in it. And it was just dreadful conditions from 2004 to about 2009 when the Tampa Bay Times first publicized the existence of the whole, thanks to people coming out of it like Mike Rinder and Mark Headley. Um, and things got a little better for the prisoners after that. I think Miscavige was worried about publicity. But as far as, I mean, the most recent people who have left in the last few years still tell us there is still a whole. People are still segregated. They're treated differently. And, you know, I mean, if Heber was put into the hole in 2004, Yes. And he's now 87 years old. That means he's basically been a prisoner of the base for eight, going on 19 years now. Yes. So, uh, and very, very, yes, I hear, I've heard some of the similar things up that, that he's, you know, really not doing well. And we have, and Karen's not, you know, Karen's, we have, Karen and I both have examples of this, what she's talking about, where they don't want somebody to die at the base. So they'll put them somewhere else. For their final days. And of course, the most, the, the example I always think of is Annie Broker, Annie Tidman, who yes. had been living at that base for years and years and years and years, got cancer. And so they've stuffed her into this little apartment in Hollywood for her to go through her final weeks. Uh, they just did not want her to die at the base. So you've heard that Heber has now been moved out of the base in some yes, sort of a ho hospice of arrangement or something? Yes. I don't think it's a hospice, but it's some kind of nursing home for very, very old people, like a retirement, something in the San Bernardino Hemet area. There are a few rest homes for the very, very elderly who will pass in the next six months. And Heber is off base because he's deteriorated. Now, Heber, in eight years that he was in the hole, was just smashed to pulp. They would have these wild seances where they would pummel each other and scream and hurl abuses. It was just a madhouse. 
Yeah, I think I the last time any, the glimpses of it. Mm-hmm. I think the last time anybody saw him was sadly when your son died, and and he had been forced to disconnect from you by Scientology, so you didn't know what was going on with him. We found out later that he had some backache problems and pneumonia, and somebody gave him medicine for the pneumonia for his back that made the pneumonia worse. And so he died. He's only, what, 26, 27 years 27. old, Karen? Mm-hmm. 27. Yeah. And um, you, I'll never forget when you got a hold of me. I was so at the Village Voice then. We wrote about that. It was so awful. Such a tragedy. And then the, to make things even worse, they wouldn't let you be involved with, you know, where they had taken his body and what they were going to do. Um, and they were just completely shutting you out. I was writing about that at the Village Voice it basically shamed Scientology enough that they've decided to have a, a memorial for him, the, for Alexander, at the Hollywood Celebrity Center. I'm personally convinced they never would have done that, except that you were raising people's awareness yeah. of how this this organization was treating you and that our stories had something to do with that. And th- they trotted him out. They trotted Heber out of it base to for this one day to appear at the Hollywood Celebrity Center and we had, we ended up getting a photo of him with Stan Gerson yeah. and I think that may be his last time he ever got to leave the base um so sad i mean to be a prisoner like that from this organization that he had served for so many years yep now heba came from a polygamist family and he had 52 brothers and sisters. His father had eight wives. Wow. But his father treated the brood of 52 kids almost like a CEO workforce. Really? Oh, God. They had to... They had to go out in the fields and they had to pick the potatoes and they had... They were... You know, they had to groom the farmland. And when they... When their statistics were down or they hadn't worked hard enough, he would poke them with a cattle prod. He was a vicious, he was a monster. And Heba came from that background. Heba told me a lot of stories of his father abuse. And I often reflected to myself, goodness, he went from one cult Right into, <laughs> you know, because he grew up in that mindset where hierarchy and obedience and punishment is the norm. Is that's the childhood he had. So I feel a lot of empathy for his. You know, people laugh and mock at some of the things he did on TV, but that was Heber's background. <laughs> Yeah. Well, like I said, I talked, I've talked to reporters that really liked him and, and have, have asked me if they, if I knew anything about what was going on with him. And it's oh, a shame. But Tony, that... Tony, he was just smashed no matter what show he did. Miss Cabbage just would just go ballistic. Yeah. He had fear of being asked to go on a show because he knew what punishment he would get. He didn't do this right. He didn't. He didn't. He didn't nail psychiatry enough. His tone level was wrong. Why didn't he show more anger on the psychiatric atrocities? Blah blah. Anything Heber did was wrong, and he would get extensive crammings 
And then, of course, it got worse. It got into punching. Do you remember the? Do you remember um, Mike Rinder talking about the dolls? The, the, right. That's right. Yeah. That Miscavige had a couple of like ventriloquist dummies made up of of him um, and Heber. And was there one other? I can't remember. I think it was Guillaume. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Guillaume Lesev. Yeah. Yeah. And then when when one of the worst, very heavy punishments Heba had was um, they went to St. Hilf in England. England is cold in November. Let me tell you, <laughs> it is cold. And Heba, Guillaume, I think Mark Eger and Runda had to hurl themselves in the lake. These were the days where it was the fad to have people throw themselves. Remember in the in that feces lake at Inpace, and then right. many people got sick and it moved to the swimming pool. Yeah. But this was a regurgitation of Hubbard hurling people off the Apollo. Yeah. So this was a ritual. May your sins, may you rise up a better Thetan and leave your sins in the deep, some weird, bizarre thing. But Heba was so, um, had so much anxiety and state of mind that he fell over a, lo a, a log and broke his ankle or very badly sprained his ankle. Uh -huh. And Miscavige was furious, absolute wrath. He said, oh, look at, look at how he's trying to get sympathy, hurting his ankle, hoff. And he had some guy, you might know the name, the PR, who was the United Kingdom PR. He had a, he had a henchman there who, who, I forget his name. Rinder's written a lot about him. He was the execution arm and they had to every day hurl themselves in the St. Hill pond or lake, but they weren't allowed to dry themselves off. Wow. So they had to stay in their wet clothes. This is the kind of punishment the president of the church got at the hands of David Miscavige. And now Heber's, I mean, this, this was, even then it was elder abuse, Tony. He sure. was in the 60s when this was happening. Yeah. What church, what entity impersonating itself as a religion takes its highest execs and orders them to hurl themselves into a lake in November in England? Yeah. You see? But you see, it all comes from very early indoctrination. Very early on, as you well, Karen, said. Mm -hmm. Karen, yeah, you left the Sea Org in 1990, but you stuck around in Scientology for another 20 years. What what was it that finally got you to start seeing Scientology this way and finally to leave? Yes, good, clever question. First of all, most of those years, my son was in the Sea Org, and I knew if I stepped out, I would never see Alexander again. So Alexander was a holder, which kept me in. I mean, I stayed away for five years. I wouldn't go to events. I wouldn't buy the new, the new CD. No, I, I, 
of those 20 years, five years I was gone. Yeah. Now, Alexander was a big holder, but you asked a good pointed question. So, so what made you leave? Well, the fact that Marty's blog influenced me a lot. Okay. And then Mike Rinder leaving. Mike yeah. Rinder and I paralleled each other almost the, the years Mike Rinder did. We were on the Apollo together. We were, we, those years, those decades, Mike Rinder and I were exactly in that time frame within the seal. So Mike Rinder leaving was a big influence. Then we would talk on the phone. Mike Rinder would spend one or two hours. He clarified why I was at in-base for six months getting tortured. Why he, he filled in the blanks of unknown things that I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Now, this was all secretive. I was still, I wasn't letting the church know. And I talked to Marty a lot as well. And after Mike Rinder and Marty left, those and and their long conversations with me, that 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 was it for me. They helped me out, and I'll always be grateful for that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's when Marty. That's when Marty uh, was helping people out before he yeah. had his bizarre change, huh? Yes, yes. The sometimes these flip flops are just beyond belief. But Marty flipped from top executive to top whistleblower, and then back to, <laughs> there's more than one flip here. <laughs> yeah. Back to supporting it. So, so um, th- that, was, that was unbelievable that Marty, after all those, re- but you know, his blogs are still up. Yeah, that's true. And, and that is lot, true. Yeah, he ha- has not taken them down. So he's a real mystery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is true. There's still more to be explored, I guess, about Marty Ratham. But I, I actually wrote a long piece where I traced the sort of evolution of that blog. And it's a very interesting evolution. I encourage, you know, those readers who, listeners who haven't seen that yet, search on, you know, Marty Rathbun, uh, Reb, the word rebel, Marty Rathbun rebel, TonyOrtega.org, it'll, it'll pop right up. And um, you'll, it's a very interesting evolution he went through. And his blog changed radically a few times. And it's all still up there if you want to take a look at it. So that's interesting. But, he, you know, he continues to put out these videos until just very recently. These videos that just the one that's a, such a mystery to me is that he would attack Mike Rinder, the guy that married him to Monique. You know, um, I mean, they were very close friends. There's just no, you know, all the explanations about, you know, that people advance about Marty Rath, but none of it explains why he would turn on Mike. And so I think any any theory has to kind of start there. But whatever, I don't want to talk about Marty Rath anymore. I, I mean, I'm glad that his blog helped you. It helped a lot of people. And then um, I'm trying to remember when, how you and I became aware of each other and when you started sort of, poking your head out a little bit publicly, what was the issue that kind of got you starting to speak out? Um, hmm. 
that's that's interesting. I um, well, my big announcement that I was out came out publicly on Marty Rathburn's blog. Okay, that was a big. And do you know I received five hundred email in one evening? Wow! I could not believe it. So I realized how many people were reading his blog. I would yep. say, Karen, remember me? You audited my power in <laughs> Karen, you came to an event and I signed up for the oh, It just went on and on and on. And I slowly waded through and responded to every single person who, who. So that sort of launched me into social media, my announcement yeah. on, on the blog. Right. But it was only after Alexander's death. You know, the coroner told me, Tony, a $20 antibiotic could have saved his life. Well, that's the thing. Just to mm-hmm. get into some details, this is what it took me a little while to figure out. The two of us did a little work to get this information. He had, he, you know, the problem was he was forced to cut off contact with you. You could have helped right. this problem. No problem. So he was with some people that I don't think really cared about him too much. He he had a he had back ache problems, and for a twenty seven year old to have back problems, first of all, that's ridiculous anyway. But um, he probably just wasn't getting proper care. But then they gave him a drug that's good for pain, but suppresses breathing. Hmm. And at the time, he had pneumonia, which hmm. suppresses breathing. So it's it was the absolute worst thing that could have been given to him. So somebody, some doctor, didn't treat him properly, didn't know what his situation was, and he took a drug that, you know, killed him at 27 years old. It's insane. Yeah. Uh, but I think he was sleeping on a couch at some people's house. It was, you know, his girlfriend's parents or something. I mean, obviously these people didn't care about the guy at all. So it was just so shocking all the way around. Two days before he died, he was having breathing problems. Breathing problems, whether you have asthma or not, are very serious. Yeah. Instead of him being rushed to a hospital, Stan Gerson gave him a touch assist. Oh, God. So he got a touch assist for not being able to breathe. Like, look, you don't just drop dead. You don't just die. Boom. Yeah. Sometimes a day or two of indicators that your body's shutting down or whatever. He had all the indicators. He had raging fever for two, three days. He yeah. couldn't breathe. And and what he got was t- Scientology touches. Which and let's got- just let's just define that. I mean, Scientology L. Ron Hubbard Scientology will not tell you you can't go to a doctor, but in that in that situation, but L. Ron Hubbard was very critical of doctors, very critical of the medical profession. I mean, he started right out with Dianetics in 1950 by saying that 77% of all ailments are psychosomatic and can be handled with this talk therapy. So a Scientologist's first inclination is not to go to a doctor. It doesn't mean they can't go, but they're, they're made very skeptical of doctors by Hubbard. And then he comes up with basically a faith healing he he claims that if there's a problem in your body, it's mainly a communication problem, that one part of your body is not communicating properly with another. And so they have this thing called an assist where you're either waving your hands over the body or maybe touching it a little. And this is supposed to put these parts of the body back in touch with each other 
in communication. I mean, that's just pure faith healing and they don't call it that, but it's, it's absolute quackery. And so, you know, here you have this young man with very real symptoms, very real problems. And this, this guy's waving his hands over him. I, I, it's just insane. No, that's why I feel Scientology has blood on his hands because I would have given him the very best medical. He would have had a full, total examination, all his labs, his vitals. But instead, he was given uh, an opioid. And, and even when he died, they, and even when they went to the body and it hadn't moved for two, a day and a half and it was unresponsive, this guy, his father-in-law, took his kid to school, didn't call 911, no resuscitation, at the time, Tom Cruise's story was blowing up the story of making Sea Org members submit videos. It was the Vanity Fair expose. Right. It was, it was the same time. Yeah, 2012, the same year yeah. that the Vanity Fair story came out, the same year that Tom and Katie split up, the same year that... Ron Miscavige Jr. escaped from the base. I mean, 2012 was a big year for Scientology stories. And I I remember that week. I was trying to deal with the Tom Cruise thing. I was trying to deal with the news about Ron Miscavige. And then all of a sudden, I got this incredible email from you and phone call. And I just, it was just horrible. Tony, you you really touched my heart. Uh, You gave me more empathy. This this is like a Tori Andreas story where the journalist has more empathy and caring. You know, I was at such a low then. If Scientology had kind of offered me some kind of counseling, I might have, I was in such a low point, losing my only child and blaming myself for raising him in a cult because got to look at what you did. You get what you get because you do what you do. Or you don't get what you don't get because you don't do what you should do. I didn't get Alexander out of the cult. And that bad is on me. And I couldn't forgive myself for that. You know? It's a heavy burden to bear. Heavy burden. Well, it's, you know... It's you been were magnificent, a... Tony. You, what you what was that? I said you were magnificent. You gave oh. me... You you really did. You you. You showed me your heart in in your empathy for losing my son, and I I think you really got it. How... Well, it was just outrageous how he had been treated, and then how you were treated. That you know they turned you away from the funeral home. You just wanted to know what was going on with your son, and it's incredible that Scientology would be able to convince a funeral home to bar the mother yeah of the the deceased person i mean it's just incredible and um you know after some time passed you then you and jeffrey and and i think tori was involved or some other people you know put together a memorial of your own and it was really wonderful you guys it was on a boat wasn't it in the harbor we rented a boat oh we did it within a week not not i mean from yeah, the time yeah. we heard of his death. Yeah. And we had hundreds of people. 
Alexander was very, very uh, liberal. And to him, you know, whether you were of color or gay and all, he, 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 he had an open tent. He was very, very, he wasn't, the cult never managed to get, indoctrinate him into the them versus us. He liked to be friendly and outgoing with everyone. People would often remark on, remark on how, how, what, you know. So we invited everyone. <laughs> if you want yeah. non Alexander would have wanted that. So people, I think some people came for the great food or whatever, but we rented this magnificent yacht and we had, we released all these roses and, you know, and balloons and, remembered him and his short life of 27 years old three purification rundowns sure. and he dies of a drug overdose he did the purification rundown three times which is supposed to bulletproof you against wanting any kind of drug right it's only supposed to you're only supposed to need it one time right karen right right oh but it's it's standard that they rehash and make you redo bridge look at there are people that redo the running program two or three times and write success stories of running well, around the pole five hours a day. Well, they might, um, in, in between, they might, you know, be a little too involved with the missed universe and, and gain a few missed pounds that they need to. <laughs> yeah. So one thing I did want to mention in this characteristic of Scientology yeah. is treating one and all like a blob. Once you get into Scientology, you are made to conform and be a good boy or a good girl. Being a good boy means you absolutely keep Scientology working and obey Hubbard's words 100%. 24-7-365. Now, a shameful example of this is if you walk into a Scientology organization because you're having a terrible time with your spouse and you're just all wired up and life at home is misery, because you are going to be shoehorned into one size fits all, they don't want to hear about your wife. Yeah. You thought you were going to go in and just, you know, be, get a cathartic venting of what's going on in your life. No, purification rundown, because that's what the great chart says. So you do this five hours a day till you reach 5,000 niacin a day, but you came in to handle problems with your wife. And when you get through the purification rundown, you think, finally, I can vent. And they're going to handle, they say they're masters at handling relationships. Now I'm going to talk about my wife. Guess what? You have to do 150 hours of survival rundown. Look at that wall. Walk over to that wall. Touch that wall. Survival rundown consists of a huge bunch of auditing commands where you just touch objects in the room or touch the hand of the processor or the auditor. It's 
<laughs> and well, by and then, seventy-five percent of people blow after well, the pure. I mean, that's one thing that struck me, Karen, is that whenever I was, you know, I, Claire Headley and I did this thing, this project where we went up the bridge together and went through yes. all the different courses. Yes, that was well done. Mm-hmm. And what struck me was anytime I went to, okay, we're going to go up to the next level. The first thing it says is you have to go back and review all those things. You have to do two yards again, read Dianetics again, do the, you know, objectives yes. again. I, to, what, what struck me, and this is what you can answer, is Scientology is so repetitive. Doesn't it just bore the heck out of people? Oh, I know people who've had to do the professional TR course like five times. Yes, it is. But you see, you're so conditioned. You have to understand that from day one, you have to obey higher authority. Right. It's a power structure. So if David Miscavige orders you to go do the briefing course again, which there is no briefing course anymore, there is no. <laughs> but if it's considered an honor, wow. literally, I've had people say, I ran into him in Freewinds and he said, hey, you need to. I was honored that he would order me to do that again. (laughs) When you have been completely, you you go into an artificial identity, you're you're not yourself anymore. You're an obedient slave to Scientology. That's your new, you're you're not, you know, Joe Schmo or Jane Doe. You are now a Sea Org member. And your or your prime identity is a loyal public Scientologist. And that becomes your prime identity, overshadowing and over overrunning any other identity you had. So you now want to obey. And if yeah, you're asked yeah. to redo these things and higher authority told you to, you respect that Tony. You don't ridge against it. You think they are higher up the food chain? They must know what they're talking about. Right. And when treated like a blob, the other treated like a blob is, if let's say the revenue is down at the Flagland base, everybody gets rice and beans. Doesn't matter what work you did that week. Treatment like a blob means everybody suffers the same punishment, wholesale. Uh Tony, do you remember the story of that mudslide where all of them, the mudslide that came down the mountain at Ink Base? August 1990? Boy! Right. So all annual leaves were canceled for everybody. I'm, I'm just giving you examples of how the treatment is Right. When I say treatment like a blob, I mean all CO members or staff members get treated in one way. That was the Valentine Valentine's Day massacre. One person leaked some stuff from income, and everybody was in lockdown for three months. There's no distinguishing one CO member from another. Everybody's going to be punished 
in the same way at the same time. What 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 are your thoughts on that? Well, I I you know I'm glad that you've explained that because I think sometimes people have a hard time. I mean, a lot of the questions I get, and I'm sure you do too, are from people who just have a hard time understanding why people would put up with the kind of things people endured in Scientology. And it all comes back to mentality. It all comes back to what do you think you're doing in Scientology? And, you know, and Leah Remini, for example, is very, um, she usually characterizes, she talks a lot about people wanting to do good for the world. And I think that's definitely part of it. But I think another part of it is the fear. You know, the people that, that Scientology, like you said, they terrorize people. You, you know, you're expected to do all these things. And they're terrified of not doing what is expected of them. And it is interesting to try to understand how they produce that fear in people. What do they have over people? And I think part of it is the way you're describing is a very hierarchical organization, uh, a very power um, aware, you know, who has the power and who doesn't. Um, it's a fascinating situation where people feel like, you know, there's some vague goal out there of saving the planet. And in order to do that, okay, but right now what I need you to do is take this toothbrush and clean out this garbage dumpster. Yes. And it's like, okay, I guess that's saving the planet, but whatever, that's what I need to do right now or I'm in big trouble. And and I don't know, it's amazing that Scientology can get well, people to do that year after year. Tony, there, there's a certain... There's a certain huge section of the population that need connection and togetherness and protection. And they go into a kind of nest of camaraderie. And it's, it's, it's like joining the army where you're, or, or, or any military force. You've got this connectedness where you're in the same uniform as others and you're all playing the same, you all have the same goal. And there's a certain amount of people that want that, that yeah. that they'll just stay there because of the friendships. They're not going to lose this kind of lifestyle. But then another 50% value their freedom and individuality and don't want to be a good boy on and on and on. And these people will escape sooner or later. They're renegades. They're not going to... They'll, they'll bow to all of this for a while, and then they'll go, look, this treating everyone like a blob goes so far as to make everybody do incident two. They've got to go through this prefabricated bridge, and then they've got to look at the materials and audit the volcano incident hurled into outer space with H-bombs going off, and implanted the the incident two incident. Mm -hmm. This is prefabricated, and everybody is supposed to do this, regardless of regardless of where they come from or what they believe. Do this you remember? Is OT3. You can't go higher than OT three till you do this. Do you remember your reaction when you first read that material? It was. Um, it it was. 
I was just stunned. I was more like in shock that this is an OT level. It didn't, but I certainly felt at the time, Hubbard is a genius and I'm too messed up mentally to be able to appreciate. <laughs> Probably I have too much baggage, therefore I can't see the brilliance and wisdom of it all. Wow, wow. <laughs> so, so, so this is the thing, Tony. You got, this is, people really struggle sometimes. And people sometimes just leave. They hand their materials. You have no idea, unless you're a case supervisor, how many people actually walk out the door after this. Uh -huh. And Scientology say they, they were just overly charged. They were not up to it. We mistakenly put them on OT3, but they were not up to the level. Now, after all the years of struggling, some people struggle and try to comply. There's a correction list. And in the correction list, only on net for OTs, you have to get to that level. Hubbard says in part of the correction list, Never had an incident one. Never had an incident two. In other words, Hubbard acknowledges that some people were not part of this sector of the universe, and they didn't get zapped. I see. I see. But there's no refund. And what about <laughs> the pain? what about the pain and suffering of people who tried it for two years and got nowhere? Oh, that's that's funny. They are so relieved that they never even had it, that Scientology is acknowledging that they were one of the rare birds that never got zapped with incident two. They're so happy to have that acknowledgement. They don't demand compensation for their wasted two years of wading through this to no result. Right. <laughs> well, let me let me just try to help out some of our newer listeners who may be completely lost <laughs> and try to try to explain a little bit that um, one of the things that's most characteristic about Scientology, even though they won't talk about it, the celebrities won't say anything about it, is the idea of past life therapy. And that is you are, L. Ron Hubbard's idea was, is that you're not just this body you're in right now. You are an immortal Thetan, which is their word. It's sort of like a soul. And you, as an immortal Thetan, are something like 76 trillion years old. You've lived countless times in many different bodies. And so what you're trying to do in Scientology is recover memories from, that's called your whole track of existence. So you're looking for whole track memories. They might be from 10,000 years ago, millions of years ago, billions of years ago. And of course, if they're that old, they're on other planets somewhere. And so this, this becomes very characteristic in Scientology is that you're using the E-meter to try to find out who you were a million years ago. Mm -hmm. And one of the key parts of this is the auditor can never tell you, oh, no, you're wrong. That, that's, you're remembering that you were this pilot on a planet 20 million years ago. That didn't happen. The, the auditor can never do that. If that's what you remember, that's the truth. However, this is one of the reasons why OT3 is so shocking is after you've been doing this for years and you've built up this whole idea of who you were millions and billions of years ago, at OT3, and it's taking you hundreds of thousands of dollars to get to this point, you, they sit you down 
they literally bring in a locked briefcase, open it up, and show you these handwritten materials, handwritten by L. Ron Hubbard, where for the first time in your Scientology career, instead of them having you tell them what happened to you in your life, L. Ron Hubbard tells you 75 million years ago there was this galactic overlord named Xenu who had an overpopulation problem and he brought billions of people to planet Tigiak, which today we call Earth, stuffed them around hydrogen bombs, uh, I mean volcanoes and blew them up with hydrogen bombs, took their disembodied thetans and implanted them with false memories about the world's religions and things. And that now you have to deal with this because it's in your past. And I've tried to explain to people one of the reasons this is so shocking for Scientologists is, like I said, up to this point, they have been asked to remember their own memories of their past. And this is the first time when Hubbard says, okay, but now this is what happened in your past. And you have to deal with it. Now, what you're saying to me now, Karen, is that at some point, some of the Scientologists are told, actually, you were in a different part of the galaxy or the universe, and this did not happen to you. And so you don't have to deal with it. I, I did not realize that, Karen. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this whole exorcism thing goes on for years in Scientology and it costs a fortune. Yeah, so the, the upshot of, yeah, let me just explain. The upshot of that is on OT3, you learn this backstory about Xenu. And that he had brought all these people to Earth and blew them up and, you know, released their thetans, their implanted, you know, messed up thetans. So they're stuck to you. You learn on OT3 for the first time. It's not just you and your thetan, you know, you're a thetan and you have a body. You now learn that there's hundreds of invisible body thetans stuck to you, left over from this genocide from 75 million years ago. And so on OT3, you need to identify these invisible beings that are in you and around you and get rid of them. But then there's OT4 and OT5 and 6 and 7. And each of those levels costing tens of thousands of dollars each are just more ways of getting rid of body thetans in different ways. So on OT4, you're dealing with their drug histories. On OT5, you're getting rid of the ones that cause cancer, uh, etc. And it's just like, you know, like Karen says, it's years and years. And the money is just insane, right? just incredible sums of money some people are doing this for 20 years sitting in yeah. session five five times a day yeah. um, handling these uh, and and remember that at first it seemed that body thetans got their birth certificate at 75 million years ago that's when suddenly these all these attached spirits that you have as soon as you intend them telepathically to 75 million, they're supposed to blow or get jettisoned out of your thing. And if they don't, you have to find which volcano and run through blah, 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 blah. Now, <laughs> now, now, now this, is, this is taken very seriously. Right. Um, and Hubbard truly, truly believed in this. Yeah. In his last year of life, he made his faithful caretaker, Sarge, go to the perimeter white picket fence to find a BT sitting on the fence. And the attached spirit wasn't on Hubbard, but sitting on the fence. Right. 
And poor Sarge, Sarge had never looked at OT3 material, so this was like, Hubbard. this was crazy Hubbard talking. Yeah. And then, this is very, very important. I think the whole thing came, came, I used to meet with Marty Rathburn privately. We, we were, he, he would get followed. He would be staying in Burbank. I think he was staying with Mark and Claire sometimes. And he would right. tell me how he had to shake off tails. Right. We, we used to meet at a hotel called a Hacienda. And a Hacienda is like five blocks. It just goes on block after block football. And it has about 28 different exits and entrances. So once you get into the Hacienda, you, you can shake any tail. This is a Los Angeles airport hotel. And okay. meeting at the Hacienda, one day, Marty said, sit down and take a deep breath. And Marty told me of Hubbard ordering the electric shock machine to this was long before the story came out. This right. was uh, Marty befriended Sarge because Marty knew Sarge, the caretaker of Hubbard. And Marty was getting briefed by Sarge. And then eventually he went and saw Sarge and got stuff on tape for his book. But he got a preemptive strike by Larry who videotaped Sarge at that right. time together again you know it was a real earthquake in my world i had been for 30 40 years been indoctrinated to think that electric shock was the evil evil devastating engram of all time because all these invisible spirits around you they clustered up and became a ball they shrunk like if an acupuncture needle punctures you, your muscles just contract and roll into a ball. Well, apparently all, the <laughs> all these entities around you shrink into a, a little marble on electric shock. Oh, okay. And this is Let all me... very much indoctrinated how you undo the cluster when you're trained in all of this knots procedure. You have to undo the shrinkage into this hard marble that it's become and shatter the marble and release all these spirits oh tony really, <laughs> oh god so I what you're saying though huh? but what you're saying is that what marty rathbun let you in on uh and then lawrence wright later revealed to the world yeah. was that in his in his last months hubbard was apparently pretty miserable and he asked sarge to uh, fix up his e-meter so that it could shock him to death. It looked yes. electrocuted. Yes. First of all, Hubbard was supposedly the author of False Purpose Rundown. And any non-survival purpose, you're supposed to have flushed right out of you so that you are pure survival. You don't have any negative intention. Well, to knock your body off and to kill yourself is very much the reverse of all of what Scientology is supposed to do, which is to make you survive better. You're supposed to get happier, more competent, more efficient, 
more Superman, more Superwoman. <laughs> so to knock yourself off with a high velocity electric shock as you picked up the cans on the e-meter was so earth shattering to me. I think that might have been when I realized I'd been duped, that this whole thing, I think that was a very powerful, I, I, Tony, I, I was, when you, when you realize you put in 38, 40 years into a belief that's a, that is just, <laughs> I, you'd have to walk in my shoes to realize in one sense, I was deflated. On the other sen- on the other hand, I was, I felt a sense of liberation. I don't have, <laughs> all well, of that is history. It's fascinating because I think a lot of times uh, it's hard for those of us who are never Scientologists to understand, again, that evolution that you go through and that, you know, the fact that Hubbard was in hiding on its own might suggest that he's not the greatest scientist who ever lived in all the things he claimed for himself. But for you, it was realizing that he was so miserable at the end of his life, he asked for Sarge to create an emitter that would kill him. Yes. That this shocked you into realizing maybe Hubbard wasn't who he had always said he was. And, and that's so hard for Scientologists, because Hubbard is at the center of everything, isn't it? Yes, yes. But 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 also there's one important point. The reason he wanted that shock machine to kill him was Hubbard claimed he had an SPBT he couldn't get rid of. <laughs> Tony, please define SPBT. <laughs> well, so there was so there was this unseen entity, this body thetan that was. Uh, a suppressive person, somebody who was an enemy of the, of, him, of him and the church, that he could not chase away. And right. I mean, this is this is L. Ron Hubbard. He's he should have been able to chase away anything. Right. And and you know, internally, when I was in, when somebody died of cancer or something, I would hear people say, "Ah, he had SPBTs he didn't handle." Wow. Right. SBBT, SBBT, SBBT is the who and the why and the when. I mean, I know Osa is totally convinced that the reason I carry on and make videos is I got SBBTs that weren't flushed up. <laughs> you know, they, they have to find a why. Why? Yeah. How could a loyal class 12 talk like this? Oh, SBBTs. That's, That's the who. That's fascinating. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting. So OSA stands for the Office of Special Affairs, and that's the current secret police and spy wing of, of Scientology. And they spend a lot of money smearing you, smearing me and Mike and Leah and, and putting out all this stuff on social media. Uh, they've been particularly cruel to you over the years. And, uh, you know, that's one of the things that I'd really like to see. Them. You'd think the government would be interested Um in, in some of these uh, operations that Scientology runs. But they've got a whole new set of targets now since Danny Masterson's trial. I don't know if you've seen much yeah. of this, Karen, but yes. every reporter who wrote anything about that trial, uh, and uh, especially if they quoted you or me, oh my goodness, 
you know, they're all getting smeared. They're all getting the OSA treatment. And now Tracy McManus is getting it because she wrote this excellent story about David Miscavige avoiding service. So yeah. they, you know, the first thing they do is they find a picture of one of us where we look awful. And then they, they do play with brightness and contrast on Photoshop to make it look even worse. And, uh, and then they just, you know, and they're using taxpayer money to do it. That's what's just amazing to me that the government at some point says, wait a minute, this is not, this is not acting like a religious organization. It's acting like a mafia. Um, and they certainly have really hammered you over the years, Karen. It's just been awful. (laughs) That which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. No, Tony? (laughs) You never talk about the fair game on you. You never, you never, you just don't even mention it. But you, <laughs> Mike Rinder, Mike Rinder, Leah, Tony, you are absolutely top targets. Uh, I, 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 I will, I will, I will just acknowledge that. And well, thank you. I mean, I, I just, I. They go after all of us, and I just, I've been so, you know, I hate the way they smear you because it's so cruel. And it's just, I don't understand how there hasn't been some, well, whatever. I'm always mystified that the government doesn't look into this group more. But uh, someday, Karen, someday they're going to open up those OSA files. We're going to find out who's been writing all this stuff about us. Um, I mean, don't you think that, David Miscavige's organization at this point is just a shell of what it was just like 10 or 15 years ago? Yes. That's what's so baffling. Because whatever they're doing isn't working. Their PR is in a free fall. It's just (laughs) that wonderful thing. They're comparable to Satanism in popularity. That's right. So whatever the game, whatever the actions are, it's, things are getting worse. Orgs are empty. People are, you know, fleeing faster than joining, slowly dribbling out or moving away. But they keep doing the same thing, keep making yeah. more hate pages. So they, they do. don't learn that certainly... And they're supposed to be top evaluators. The data series evaluators are supposed to find out exactly what the hell is going on and revert it. Well, <laughs> and finally, I wanted to just say that for those who listened to Tony and were just curious or thought of dipping their toe in the shallow end of the swimming pool, please know that Scientology absolutely wants a relationship with you and it wants to be the prime relationship with you. You, Your family is not your prime relationship. Your children are not. They're lower down in importance. Scientology is a love only me cult. It wants your love and your money and your time and your energy and your children when they're old enough to join the Sea Org. It wants everything from you. And what do you get in exchange? Well, 
they'll get rid of your 400 million VTs. <laughs> which they claim only they have the commands to jettison out. They say, look, the Catholic Church, you can have an exorcism which goes on for hours, and we can expel a BT in two minutes flat. What are you? I am the blood on a sword. Thank you. What are you? I am a Roman gladiator. Thank you. What are you? I'm a gladiator with a sword pierced through my stomach. Needle reaction on the meter. Thank you. Who are you? Oh, I'm none of those things. Those were past life. Those were just, I'm, a, I'm myself. Thank you. You are free to leave. The well, beach vanishes. Thank, thank you very much for that. Uh, we don't usually get that. That's great. That's a little demonstration of what it's like to be auditing body thetans. That, that's what you just gave us, right? <laughs> I did. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> wow. That's wonderful. Well, um, this was a lot of fun, Tony. Thank you very much for inviting me. This was a lot of fun. And, um, I'm going to make just a very quick visit uh, this next week for this hearing, but I'm, you know, I'm expecting there's probably going to be a retrial. I don't have confirmation yet. Don't, don't get excited people, but I have, I'm thinking there may be a, re, a retrial in March. And at that point, I'm hoping I'll be seeing a lot more of you again, Karen. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. We are totally happy to host you and have our yummy dinners Laugh it, laugh it. Tell Jeff, tell Jeffrey we said hello and give Sebastian and, and Stefan a big hug oh, for me, okay? Thank you, Tom. Okay, okay, thank you, Karen. Bye. Talk to you later. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bunker Town in Bunker Town again, again, again. To witness history, wait to see how reckoning.